Did you know that one of the first attempts to cure a parathyroid adenoma in America was in the 1920s? This involved a gentleman named Captain Charles Martel, who underwent seven operations before eventually being found to have a mediastinal parathyroid adenoma. The adenoma was successfully resected, but Mr. Martel unfortunately succumbed to the consequences of surgery. The good news is that we have come a long way in treating parathyroid adenomas since then. Today, our patient has a suspected parathyroid adenoma, and you are the doctor. Welcome to The Internet Work, a podcast made by internal medicine residents meant to serve you better on the wards and on call. Today's episode is titled, An Approach to Parathyroid Adenomas. Time for our minute physiology. Before we delve into our approach, it is important to understand the anatomy and physiology of the parathyroid glands. Interestingly, the parathyroid glands were first discovered in the mid-1880s in animals. They are small, oval-shaped structures weighing approximately 0.5 grams. In 85% of individuals, there are four glands, two superior and two inferior. Relative to the thyroid, the two superior glands are usually located in the posterior lateral surface of the middle to superior thyroid lobe, while the two inferior glands are usually found in the inferior third of the thyroid gland. The parathyroid glands secrete parathyroid hormone, PTH, which plays an essential role in maintaining calcium and phosphorus homeostasis throughout the body. When the surface receptors located in the chief cells of the parathyroid gland sense that serum calcium is low, this triggers the chief cells to secrete more PTH. PTH works to increase serum calcium through several mechanisms. These include the following. 1. Through binding to osteoblasts, it causes the release of rank L and MCSF. This causes stimulation of osteoclast precursors to mature into osteoclasts which results in bone resorption and release of calcium and phosphate into the serum. 2. Increased calcium absorption in the distal tubules of the nephron, allowing for increased calcium reabsorption and, in contrast, excretion of phosphate. 3. Facilitating the activation of calcitriol, 1,25-dihydroxycholecalciferol, the active formulation of vitamin D, which in turn enhances intestinal absorption of calcium. Parathyroid adenomas can occur in up to 1 in 80 people in their lifetime, approximately 1.25% of people. Females are three times more likely to develop the condition than men. The highest risk group is female patients over the age of 50. Several risk factors have been identified, including a history of radiation. Additionally, parathyroid adenomas can be a sequelae of a hereditary endocrine condition known as multiple endocrine neoplasia, men, specifically men 1 and men 2a. All right, so now that we've talked about the basic physiology, let's talk about the approach. At the start of any patient encounter, it is essential to assess whether a patient is stable or not. Do they have secure ABCs? Are their vital signs stable? Generally, you'll be seeing patients suspected to have parathyroid adenomas in the outpatient setting. We should suspect a potential parathyroid adenoma in patients with severely elevated calcium levels and consider starting a workup. These patients may present with altered mental status, arrhythmias, or be comatose, so it is important that these patients are adequately resuscitated with intravenous isotonic saline and other adjunctive therapies such as intravenous bisphosphonates while proceeding with assessment. An approach to a parathyroid adenoma requires a combination of history-taking, biochemical, and radiographic evaluation. Most commonly, patients suspected to have a parathyroid adenoma will not present with any specific symptoms. 
incidental or screening blood work may detect an elevated calcium level, which should be corrected to the prevailing serum albumin concentration, and perhaps a lowered phosphate level. A quick and easy way to do this calculation is as follows. For every 10 gram per liter below the normal albumin level of about 40 grams per liter, add 0.2 millimoles per liter to the current serum calcium level. This constellation of blood work is known as primary hyperparathyroidism, in which PTH overproduction caused by an issue in the parathyroid gland, irrespective of the serum calcium level. However, in some cases, symptomatic hypercalcemia may be seen with the well-adored mnemonic stones, bones, abdominal groans, and psychiatric overtones, referring to kidney stones made up of calcium, bone pain, GI discomfort, nausea, vomiting, constipation, and indigestion, and causing low mood, psychosis, lethargy, fatigue, and memory loss. Extreme elevations in calcium can be more devastating, causing cardiac arrhythmias, coma, renal failure, and possibly death. When suspecting hypercalcemia and hyperparathyroidism, it is important to identify risk factors such as previous neck radiation. Additionally, asking about a family history of multiple endocrine neoplasia, including asking about the specific associated tumors as many patients may not know of a family history of men, as well as familial hypocalciuric hypercalcemia, FHH. Finally, inquiring about medication use such as lithium and thiazide diuretics, which can also put the patient at risk for hypercalcemia through different mechanisms. From a physical examination standpoint, there are no real outward signs that may point you towards thinking that a patient has a parathyroid adenoma. It is important to distinguish that primary hyperparathyroidism is different from secondary and tertiary hyperparathyroidism. Secondary hyperparathyroidism results from excess PTH stimulation by the parathyroid glands, driven by another issue outside of the parathyroid gland, such as renal failure, which often leads to a prolonged hypocalcemic state. Tertiary hyperparathyroidism usually occurs in patients who have undergone kidney transplants. Despite parathyroid function returning to normal post-transplant, because of long-standing abnormal function while patients were suffering from chronic renal failure slash dialysis, the parathyroid gland function never returns to normal. Now let's talk about the workup. Biochemically, we should expect to see an elevation in serum calcium on repeated blood work, but it is often only a small elevation and usually less than 0.25 millimoles per liter above the upper limit of normal. The first following test should be a PTH level, which may be elevated 80-90% to 90% of cases or inappropriately normal 10-20% to 20% of cases, given that it should be suppressed due to the patient's hypercalcemia. This usually confirms the diagnosis of primary hyperparathyroidism, PHPT. Another possible diagnostic test is a 24-hour urine calcium. It is not usually required to diagnose PHPT, but can help distinguish between PHPT and FHH. 40% of patients with PHPT generally have an elevated urine calcium, 200 to 300 milligrams per day, and essentially rules out FHH. If calcium excretion is less than 200 milligrams per day, one should suspect FHH or PHPT with a concomitant vitamin D deficiency or poor oral calcium intake. Assessment for FHH requires 24-hour urine and serum measurement of calcium and creatinine. Using both the 24-hour urine calcium and creatinine measurements, a calcium to creatinine ratio can be calculated. Values less than 0.01 are more indicative of FHH, whilst values greater than 0.02 are more suggestive of primary hyperparathyroidism. Ordering a serum 25-hydroxyvitamin D, or vitamin D, can also further help distinguish between PHPT and FHH. Generally, patients with a parathyroid adenoma will have normal vitamin D levels. 
A low vitamin D can also reduce urinary excretion of calcium, but if corrected, can increase urinary calcium excretion. If urinary calcium excretion does improve, it points further against FHH. There is a limited role for the use of genetic testing in the majority of patients with PHPT. It is usually only recommended in younger patients less than 30 years of age, patients with a family history of PHPT, multi-gland involvement, an atypical parathyroid adenoma, or any clinical suspicion for the multiple endocrine neoplasia syndromes. Once we have a biochemical diagnosis of hyperparathyroidism, we need to try to get a better look at the parathyroid glands. The most common imaging modality is nuclear imaging, specifically single radioisotope scintigraphy with technetium 99M, 99MTC, combined with single photon emission computed tomography, SPECT imaging. Through 3D techniques, the parathyroid glands can be visualized with up to 91 to 98% sensitivity. This test is commonly referred to as a Sestamibi scan. Importantly, this test will be able to localize an adenoma if present, based on it lighting up via uptake. There are also causes of diffuse parathyroid hyperplasia where multiple glands will be hyperactive without a solitary adenoma identified. The regular good old ultrasound can also be used as an adjunct to nuclear imaging. Normal parathyroid glands should not be identifiable on ultrasound. Parathyroid glands can be identified on ultrasound as a hypoechoic oval mass with a fat plane, allowing it to be seen external to the thyroid tissue. One may also visualize an artery supplying the adenoma as well. One may also visualize an artery supplying the adenoma. As with all ultrasounds, imaging is operator dependent, limiting its sensitivity to only 60 to 80%. Another more recent option is the use of four-dimensional com computed tomography and magnetic resonance imaging. However, they are still not as sensitive as nuclear imaging for identifying parathyroid adenomas with sensitivities of 75% and 40-85% to respectively. However, studies have shown that CT and MRI are more beneficial in localizing potential ectopic glands after failed parathyroidectomy compared to nuclear imaging or ultrasound. To reiterate, ultrasound slash CT slash MRI are not typically done in these patients, and Sestamibi is the preferred test. Time for treatment. The treatment of choice for a parathyroid adenoma is surgical resection. Guidelines recommend parathyroidectomy for the following conditions. 1. Symptomatic primary hyperparathyroidism. 2. In the absence of symptoms, albumin-corrected serum calcium greater than 0.25 millimoles per liter above the upper limit of normal, 3. Evidence of renal involvement, silent nephrolithiasis, nephrocalcinosis, urine calcium levels greater than 10 millimoles per liter, or EGFR less than 60 mls per minute, 4. Evidence of primary hyperparathyroidism and osteoporosis, fragility fracture, or evidence of vertebral compression fracture on imaging, 5 age 50 or less at the time of diagnosis. In the past, bilateral gland exploration was the accepted surgical technique. However, many studies have shown that up to 85% of hyperparathyroidism consistent with a parathyroid adenoma is caused by single adenoma disease. With these findings in choice, minimally invasive parathyroidectomy is now the method of choice. Postoperatively, resection of the parathyroid adenoma can lead to complications such as injury to the recurrent laryngeal nerve, leading to hoarseness if unilateral and airway occlusion if bilateral. Additionally, hypocalcemia postoperatively is common, and intravenous calcium gluconate may be required in the immediate postoperative period. Long-term, if patients remain hypocalcemic, 
They will require calcium supplementation, sometimes with calcitriol, and often will be followed by an endocrinologist. Patients who are not candidates for surgery, which is not uncommon in our elderly patients, can be managed medically with long-standing monitoring of biannual measurement of serum calcium, yearly serum creatinine, and annual bone density testing. These patients often require ongoing treatment with sinicalcid or bisphosphonates to control their calcium and or symptoms and try to preserve bone density. The literature has demonstrated that up to 25% of asymptomatic patients will develop indications requiring surgery. In the meantime, they're advised to limit their calcium to 1,000 to 1,200 milligrams daily and vitamin D to 400 to 600 international units daily. Once the diagnosis of hyperparathyroidism has been established, it is important to evaluate the patient for renal complications as well as bone mineral density testing in three sites, lumbar spine, hip, and forearm. This allows for quantification of bone loss due to primary hyperparathyroidism and allows for determination of fracture risk going forward. Let's finish with our medicine minute. The parathyroid glands were first noted in 1850 in a rhinoceros cadaver by Sir Richard Owen in London, England. He identified a small, compact, and yellow glandular body attached to a thyroid. The first human parathyroid glands were described in 1863 by Rudolf Virchow, a famous pathologist. That's all for today. Thank you for listening to today's episode entitled An Approach to Parathyroid Adenoma. This episode is written by Dr. Akshay Vargese, internal medicine resident, and reviewed by Dr. Stan Van Oom, endocrinologist, and Dr. Ian Brown, general internal medicine. This episode was recorded and produced by Leah Karianopoulos. The Internet Work Series is created by Allison Lai and is executively managed by Leah Karianopoulos and Zara Morelli. Music by Lakshman Basanthamoa. As always, don't forget to check out www.theinternetwork.com for associated resources and infographics. Thank you for listening, and we hope to see you again soon.